Cultivating Place is made possible in part through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. Cultivating Place is also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Jane Delury describes herself as a fledgling, maybe seedling, gardener after eight years into gardening being part of her everyday life and loves. This labor and love in life coincides with the themes of landscapes, gardens, and gardeners becoming fully fledged themes and characters in her fiction writing, showing up clearly in her first novel, The Balcony, and taking center focus in her newly released novel, Hedge, which is a great garden-based summer read, because we all need a good garden reading list, don't we? I do. This is a great addition. Jane, I am so pleased to meet you here, as it were, by the hedge. Welcome to Cultivating Place. Thank you so much for having me. So, you know, I have introduced you primarily as an author, Jane, but I would love to have you introduce yourself a little more personally to listeners uh, and perhaps include in that introduction, are you a gardener? And what role might plants or gardens or landscapes play in your personal life as well as perhaps your literary life? Absolutely. In fact, just before I came to speak to you, I was out in my garden and I picked um, from my first broccoli plant. I'm very excited. Ooh, yes. Very I excited. I have broccoli in my teeth as I'm talking to you. Um, so <laughs> yes, I have been saying that I'm a fledgling gardener now for probably eight years. So I think at this point, I should have something in the way of wings. But I live uh, just outside of Baltimore City, right on the city line. And I have a townhouse that was built in 1920. And in sort of typical Baltimore style, I have a very um, thin strip of garden in which I put every plant that calls out to me. I mean, I have I think I have 25 containers out there and mm. um, two raised beds. And it's my great pleasure uh, in the spring and summer to work in my garden, but also to just be in my garden and be in the in the quiet of my garden. Mm, that's lovely. And maybe take us back a little bit as to your gardener germination story. What what made you become a fledgling gardener eight years ago? And were there perhaps people or places and plants in your past? Uh, I know you grew up uh, outside of Sacramento yeah. that might have led you to become a fledgling gardener at this point in your life. Well, I think uh, eight years ago, uh, it was actually more like nine years ago, I bought this house uh, and was setting out on sort of on my own. Um, I had just divorced and I had two daughters and I this was my first home that was all my own. And mm. I couldn't really afford to do much about the interior of the house. And the, the backyard, which was kind of a sad strip of grass at the time, uh, became this area of creativity where I could just kind of go wild and experiment. And, uh, and it also really became a sanctuary for me in, you know, at what was a difficult time of transition. So 
in terms of the, uh, my sort of active keeping of a garden, this house and this space behind the house um, is really tied to that. Uh, historically, I've always had a real love of open space, um, of hiking, of being in nature. Uh, I did grow up in Sacramento. I grew up in the suburbs of Sacramento and had a very conflicted feeling about uh, suburban development as a child. Uh, very early, I had this real, um, it, it just really made me sad to see the open space being filled, mm -hmm. filled in. And my family did a lot of traveling and we traveled to Europe and we traveled to the South Pacific. And so I had a, a lot of opportunities to see really beautiful natural spaces that had not been transformed too much, especially in the South Pacific. That's less true in Europe, of course. Um, but I think uh, what really, where I really started connecting to landscape was when I went, I was an undergraduate student at UC Santa Cruz, which is just mm. such a beautiful, incredibly beautiful place. And I developed in those years living there, this rhythm with the natural setting that I was in. I went uh, I went mountain biking every day up in, into the hills uh, around campus in this natural preserve. I would see mountain lions. I mean, there's all kinds of wildlife and just inc it's this incredible natural space. And that became part of my daily routine mm. to connect to nature. I moved to France and I was living in a city but um, my partner at the time, his grandparents had a, a small house and a garden on the edge of a forest in central France. And we would go there often. And his grandfather was an avid, avid gardener and had this huge vegetable garden. And my first book actually was very much inspired by that forest yeah. and by that garden. And that he was a very um, a big figure for me and his connection to the land and to this particular plot of land that he worked was so strong and so beautiful. Um, my, you know, I remember bringing my, my daughter, who's now 21, bringing her there for the first time. And he fed her a strawberry from the strawberry patch. And, mm. <laughs> uh, and, and I think living in France as well, um, I developed an appreciation for this connection to the land and to where our food comes from that was present in the, in the Alps around Grenoble, where I was living. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And then, so fast forward, I, I continued to garden and hike in the intervening years. But I think when I, when I moved here, there was a real sort of um, explosion of all of that. <laughs> and it's yeah. sort of a literal explosion because I mean, there are no limits in that backyard to what I plant. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that is, a story, that idea of really coming into your own as a gardener with your first house of your own or piece of ground of your mm. own, whether you're with someone else or not. It's true of many gardeners. And I think it's true of even more gardeners now, uh, you know, post-pandemic when the pandemic uh, really forced a lot of people to see their spaces in new ways and more intimate ways than they had before. And I, I just... I'm already starting to pick up some of the motifs and themes that run through uh, this book, Hedge, uh, in, in the stories you've already shared. Maybe take listeners on your path as a writer uh, to your first, uh, you know, 
published book, as it were. I think there was quite a bit of publishing of stories or essays prior to The Balcony um, coming out. But maybe take us along that, because The Balcony really encompasses many of these same themes and location kind of uh, symbols. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm a very place-inspired writer. That really Mm. is where I've I find my characters in a place. They, that's where they mm. appear to me. So in the balcony, um, this forest, again, which is a very um, kind of a run-of-the-mill um, young growth forest in central France. There's nothing all that fancy about it. But it became um, kind of my my refuge in some ways. Um when I would when I would first go to these big family reunions, my French wasn't so great. Um, it was a wonderful family, but with a very you know rich family culture, I couldn't follow everything. And so I would go out into the forest by myself, and just being in that solitude was very grounding for me. And hmm. the woods had always served that purpose um, in my life. And again, the same thing at um, in Santa Cruz. So. Um, I, I started to write short stories while I was living in France, uh, but it was when I came back to uh, the U.S. and I was doing a, a graduate degree at Johns Hopkins in in fiction that I started writing about that forest. So yeah. in some ways, um, when I was writing in France, I was writing about the United States. And then when I came here in that displacement again, even though I was being displaced to my home country, I uh, I started to write about up France and in particular about this area and the people loosely connected to it. And I wrote about probably 12 stories that took place in the forest that uh, in different time periods, I had a story that was very much based on that vegetable garden and a father-son relationship um, uh, around that garden. And then I, when I decided to put these together in into a book, I created a fictional property, um, a manor house and a servant's cottage. And I told the story of the people who had lived in those two places connected by that forest over the course of the 20th century. So that was my first book. So it was a, it was a novel, but it was a novel in stories where each chapter was a story. Yeah. Yeah. And that was published in 2018. Did you start immediately working on Hedge after that? And maybe some of the storylines or um, ideas for Hedge started coming to you in putting together those those that book in stories and some of those stories uh, as you as you went along. Yeah, well, I think that you've mentioned you you kind of hear similar themes. I think that there are a lot of similar themes in um, in the balcony. A lot of the stories about women trying to define themselves, often mm-hmm. women trying to find themselves in terms of particular place and its legacy. So that's clearly something I'm I'm very preoccupied by. Um, Hedge was an interesting experience because I did start it. I'm very bad at time. Is that true of gardeners? Are gardeners bad at time? Or that's just crazy. I think I'd rephrase that into you're particularly good at being fluid with time. I like that. Thank you. The gardeners aren't bad at time. We're really good at a bigger sense of time. Thank you. I think I like that that's better. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. The, <laughs> the eternal, right. Uh, that's right. So I uh I think it was around maybe 2019. Um so it was after the balcony had come out and there's always this it, it really does sort of feel like 
giving birth. I mean, I'm someone who has done that before and there are parallels, um, you know. Oh, yeah. And, and so um, I was kind of, you know, recovering from the childbirth of the balcony and it was summer and I needed a, I needed a new project. And I decided I was just going to start something and not worry about what happened or what it was. I just needed to make a word count every day, which is very numerical and not like me at all, actually. But uh, but it really worked. I would go out in the garden every morning under the umbrella. I have very fair skin, so I have to be careful. And I just wrote. Um, and that became Hedge. And, you know, obviously the book, well, obviously to me, the book was grappling with these issues that I was grappling with in my life. How do you start again at, you know, in your early 40s when you have two daughters and you've been in one family unit and now you're creating this new family unit. And so a lot of the questions that Maude uh, is dealing with, I was dealing with in my own life, but I really did draft the first draft of this book literally in that garden. And, mm. you know, I have a photograph of uh, a, a picture I took that summer as I was drafting it. And I have a very narrow strip of ground along the fence. So I'm always trying to figure out what to do with it. And that summer I planted sunflowers and there's this beautiful uh, photo of just these gorgeous, I can't remember what variety they were, these gorgeous sunflowers towering you know, against the fence. Well, I realized mm. recently that I don't know the name of the chemical that sunflowers excrete into the ground, but they can inhibit the growth of other plants. Mm -hmm. I think that the reason I struggled so much in planting that <laughs> planting that strip um, when I pulled the sunflowers out in the fall was because, you know, because of this chemical that, that all of those sunflowers had excreted into the soil, um, mm -hmm. which is just, I think, an example of how I'm always learning out there. I mean, there's always more to learn about plants. And I mean, it's, it's overwhelming. I wish I really do wish I could quit writing and just learn about. All the <laughs> there's so much to know. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. We're speaking this week with novelist Jane Delury about her newest novel, Hedge. Deep into the heat of summer now, this week we're leaning into the pleasures of a good summer book. In our case, a good garden-based summer book. Hedge is steamy, dreamy, and through the setting of the garden and garden history, it plums the depths of human longing, loss, and ultimately, the long view. Stay with us. We'll be back for more with Jane Delury and Hedge. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Caddo Shaw Foundation funds initiatives that empower women and help preserve the planet through the intersection of environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. Cultivating Place is also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy, a not-for-profit organization whose mission is to preserve, share, and celebrate gardens and America's gardening traditions. Recent Garden Conservancy news includes the announcement of the second two episodes in the Sissinghurst Through the Seasons series. The fall episode will air on Thursday, September 21st, and the winter episode will air on December 7th. 
Other announcements include the release of a new film trailer highlighting the forthcoming documentary about the Ann Spencer House and Garden in Lynchburg, Virginia. The trailer and registration for the Sissinghurst series are both up at gardenconservancy.org now, and the full Ann Spencer House and Garden documentary will be released later this year and should be excellent. And of course, Registration is also now open for the Conservancy's inaugural Garden Futures Summit being held at the New York Botanical Garden on September 29th and in gardens across New York City on September 30th. I cannot wait to gather with you all then. Hey, it's Jennifer. So thinking about Jane's novel and the historic and life-filled gardens like Sissinghurst and the Ann Spencer Garden, and these all bring questions to my mind like, what history, what stories, what rich narratives does the land of our gardens, our neighborhoods hold? Our narratives, our past lives narratives, so rich with opportunity, so interesting if you're curious about it. I may have told you this story before, but the first garden and house I could call my own was a tiny bungalow in a northern Seattle neighborhood, a neighborhood with a strong settler history and presence of Norwegian fisherfolk. The little house we bought as our first home in the 1990s was a perfect brick block house, just like the little boxes with pitched roofs that children make line drawings of, and it was set right in the middle of what felt to me at the time as an expansive corner lot. It was a total of 800 square feet of house to almost 3,000 square feet of yard. We moved in in the winter. To me, the yard around the house felt a little disheveled, a little haphazard. I could identify the overgrown camellia at the back of the house and the overgrown rhododendron at the front, the two clipped boxwoods at the side, but everything else looked like unintentional twigs. But as rainy winter turned to still rainy spring that year and the increasing light and warmth of the season built up, plants started to break bud and then bloom. I was a seriously love-struck new garden tender, and now I am just a much older love-struck garden tender, and I was out in that first garden at first light every day, and at last light, rain or shine as they say, and in my mind, I was working with a semi-blank slate, as that saying goes, but nothing is a blank slate when it comes to the green mantle of our planet. Not really. I know that now. And as the season progressed that first year in our new old house and garden, it became abundantly clear to me that the 90-something Norwegian widow, Mrs. Benson, whose passing had precipitated the sale of the house, had been an experienced and loving garden tender before me far better than me. 
As winter turned to spring and spring to late spring and summer, the twiggy mess at the side of the house turned into a gorgeous abelia filled with bees. And those twiggy messes at the back of the house, out the main bedroom window, unfurled into the most lush, shading and fragrant native western Philadelphus, which was familiar to me from the east but I'd never been able to garden with growing up in Colorado. I could smell that Philadelphus or mock orange as we called it right now. I would quite literally walk around that first garden and talk to Mrs. Benson. Oh, I would say, nicely placed as I would come across a new patch of bulbs emerging or realize that another twiggy mess behind the small shed was in fact a beloved raspberry bed that fed us and delighted our first child through the summer months once I figured out the correct pruning for that type of cane. (laughs) So many memories are held in our gardens. Our memories people before us memories, the land's memories. We're back now to our conversation with novelist and garden and landscape lover, Jane Delury. In her newest title, Hedge, Gardens, Gardeners, and Gardening Across Time and Space and Culture take center stage as main characters. As we come back, Jane takes us into the structure and arc of the story of Maud, her search for self and purpose in her career as a garden historian in the Northeast, while her home life back in the San Francisco Bay Area falters. We start off with why Jane crafted a main character who is not just any gardener, but a garden historian working to restore a lost garden. Uh, well, first I'll say that I've always been haunted by the gardens of Pompeii. I, I, there, it's always something I've wanted mm. to write about. Obviously, I did not write about them in this book, but I do think that that influenced me. I've always wanted to write about that work to... Um, figure out what the garden looked like. And in some cases to sort of resurrect it. I mean, there's so many obvious metaphors with gardens, but you know, when you're bringing a garden back to life yes. that, that existed 300 years ago, those, those questions of life and death just really come to the surface. So I would say that that is, mm-hmm. that that's one of those, um, you know, as a writer, you have these ideas on a shelf, you know, that kind of are sitting there and that you, that you want to figure out when you can write about them. And sometimes you don't write about the literal thing, but then mm. looking back, you can see, oh, that was the, that was that item on the shelf. So I do think that, that that was part of it, but right. um, my family, uh, I'm from, as you mentioned, I'm from Sacramento and we have these annual family reunions in California because the family sort of spread all over the world. And so everybody convenes on Sacramento. And for a number of years, we were going to San Francisco, which my which is was the hometown of both of my parents, uh, and we have a lot of friends and still family there. And my mom rented this house on the edge of the Presidio Park, uh, and for several summers in a row. And I would, as I have said, you know, if there's a forest nearby, I will go 
run into it or walk into it. And so I would go out into uh, the Presidio and go and go for a run. And that is where that's how I stumbled upon um, El Pauline and the history of Juana Briones, who was um, who is known as the mother of San Francisco, uh, but was a settler very early on in the 1820s. Um, and lived with her father and her sisters at El Pauline. And a team from Stanford led by Barbara Voss um, some years ago, I think it was 2012, I might be getting the date wrong, uh, uncovered her the footprint of the house where she had lived with her sisters and her and her father. And you know, I'm a big reader of historic plaques. I got this from my father who could not drive by a historic plaque without pulling over. And so... <laughs> You know, I I read, you know, the plaques and then I did some more reading on my own and I just found her story so interesting. Um, she was such an important figure in California history. I had never heard of her before. There's very little written about her. Mm-hmm. And she was a she was a healer and she used um Yerba Buena in particular, um, which you know was the original name for San Francisco, that native mint, which was um which was often used for as a curative herb. And so I, it was really in mm-hmm. reading about her and thinking about this process of how do you find the history of people where you don't have a written record and you don't really have anything in their words at all, which is true for so much of the, so many of the people who lived in that area of the world and really everywhere in the world. Right. So I found that, uh, that research into the soil, like what can the soil tell us completely fascinating. So I, I was, yeah. I, I, it really started with Juana Briones and then it, and it grew from there. I love it. And I love that because that is where uh Maud's story for us as mm. readers kind of ends, but m- we start the book with Maud engaged in a summer long research and restoration of a historic and more formal kind of colonial garden in New York's Hudson Valley. And she has found this job after um, graduating from her studies in garden history and archaeology in the United Kingdom. She worked at Virginia Woolf's Monk's House. She did some amount of work maybe at the the Lost Gardens of Heligan. Am I getting that right? Or did she just study in those? Yeah. And so you get all of these uh, different kinds of gardens uh, over time and space and what history they can hold for us if we read them correctly. There is a, a gorgeous scene right, you know, close to the in the first part of the book where where Jane is doing her work and she's um kind of at her wit's end as to exactly how this historic garden that has disappeared was laid out. And she's trying all these different ways to to figure out based on pictures, based on written records, and then just based on looking at the lay of the land itself. Tell us about your research, Jane, that um, that incorporated all of these historic gardens and this garden career path uh, into this woman and this one moment in time. And maybe describe for people what she, what she does and what she finds out. Uh, absolutely. So um, I did so much reading for this book. I mean, I think 
five, 5% of my research <laughs> actually ended up in the novel because after all, it is a novel. It's, it's, it's a story. Um, but I read so much more than, than, than I could put, than I could put in. Um, but you know, all that research really enriched my life. That's the way I look at it. So I actually, um, yeah. started, uh, at Monticello. Um, I, contacted um, ah. the head of archaeology, the head of grounds and gardens. And I said, I, I want to, I'm working this novel and I want to learn about uh, garden history, garden restoration, archaeology. And they were just wonderful. I mean, they really took me in and um, sh- sh- walked me around. And I mean, I, I made several trips there. I visited the archives um, understanding how that garden in Monticello was restored in the 1970s, you know, what was the science that was used? Um, so I mm-hmm. started there. Um, but I, I decided the book couldn't take place at Monticello because Thomas Jefferson casts a long shadow. Um, and, and so, <laughs> although I did learn so much there, uh, in particular from uh, the head of archeology, span there's just incredible work happening uh, on the site about the people who lived on the mountain, the enslaved population that did all this work in the garden. Um, And, and there are really interesting digs of their homes and looking at what they were growing in their smaller plots of land. And um, so in terms of untold history or trying to tell the stories of people where you don't have a written record, that was such an education for me. But I did decide I needed the book to not take place at Monticello. So once I had, you know, learned quite a bit there, I decided, well, I want to find a place that doesn't have quite as much of the problematic legacy of Monticello. Although there, there were enslaved people um, at Montgomery Place uh, with the first owner. Uh, But is Montgomery Place a historic place or yeah. is it a fictional place? Okay. Yes. So good question. So Montgomery Place is an actual place. It is on the okay. Bard College campus. Uh, okay. Bard College acquired it in, I think, 2012. It's adjoining the campus. Um, okay. So I b- basically <laughs> looked, I, I, first I thought, well, what is this a place that I can get to sort of easily? Because I didn't have a huge budget to be, you know, flying across the country here that I can drive to and that I feel some connection to. And I, I love the Hudson Valley. I mean, I find the Hudson river just magnificent. And I'm, I, you know, I'd been there several times and I knew I got that feeling of the landscape when I traveled there. So I thought, well, I can write that, like that excites me to write about that landscape. So then I needed to find a property and lo and behold, (laughs) there was Montgomery place, which perfectly had a garden that has never been restored because the other thing is I wanted Maud to have a project that had never been done. Um, So uh, again, a wonderful group of people this time at at Montgomery place at Bard kind of took me in the archivists, um, the head of horticulture, Amy Perella, who's been instrumental to this book um, brought me into the archives, walked me around the grounds. um, And we, literally just kind of sketched out the entire novel at Montgomery Place, all of the action of the first part of the book. So Maud goes to Montgomery Place at the beginning of Hedge, and she is restoring a, a formal garden and a, conserva- a conservatory 
that uh, has never been restored. And it was funny in my conversations with people there, they'd say, oh, if only we could do this, you know? So I, got, I, she got to do the thing that other people, you know, dream about doing, but obviously you need a big budget to do that. But she has it because I sort of invented a nonprofit that owns the property. And so it's kind of a dream job where she um, yeah. has a summer basically to bring that garden back to life. Yeah. And it, it- She's at this critical moment, right, as we kind of meet her and she is embarking on a professional but also a personal relationship with the head of archaeology there at uh, Montgomery Place in its fictional world on the page of Hedge. And she does this great experiment to see if she can find the layout of the historic space. Can you describe that? Yes. So that's an anecdote I actually stole from Monticello, but I believe I yeah. read it to the Lost Gardens of Heligan because, yeah. because that's where Maud would have learned it. Um, right. So in the opening of the book, uh, you know, speaking of time and gardening, there is a clock. You can't plant in the dead heat of July, right? So she gets there in May and she has to get, she has to figure out what plants were growing and she has to get them in the into the ground before it gets too hot to plant them. So she's under pressure in the opening of the book and she's trying to figure it out. And she's been in the archives, you know, reading the letters of Louise Livingston and Andrew Jackson Downing, the fam- famous nursery owner and horticulturalist who helped to, in fact, design this garden at Montgomery Place. And it's not getting anywhere. And Gabriel, the archaeologist on site, it, it has been taking soil samples. He's not finding anything. Um, and then she has this kind of flash, this epiphany, and remembers a trick that worked in the Lost Gardens of Heligan, which, you know, parenthetically, actually Monticello in the 1970s, right. of uh, illuminating the surface of the lawn. So what was once the garden, of course, you know, in typical American fashion is now grass. So illuminating the lawn at night with the headlights of, of a car to see, to, to make out the depressions of the beds, which come out in the shadow. Right. So, and it works, you know, that will be the spoiler for this podcast. It works. (laughs) at the end of chapter one she sees where the beds were and so she can restore the gardens so um there you know Maud has some tough times in this book but that is one victory right out the gate that that this this works and she can um start working on that garden and get those plants into the ground and and metaphorically it is it is a very rich uh a very rich metaphor of the impressions that are left in in a space mm-hmm. uh, over time on us, in our lives, in our gardens, our gardens on the world, uh, for better or for worse, right? right. And um, and one of the things I just so enjoyed uh, about the book was the um, really expert elegance that you employ in including garden history, including garden and professional garden language and knowledge so that it seems like it's a normal part of life uh, for this person in this world. And to have that be the center around which a whole human narrative um, swirls 
in the case of Maud and her daughters and uh, her her about-to-be ex-husband and her um, possibly new love, but then possibly not new love, like that for me was just a lovely statement about the importance of of gardens in our world and the strength of gardeners and the way in which culture and history is held in these tangible but also ephemeral vessels that gardens and gardeners are that's a beautiful way of putting it and i hope so i have i really have so much respect i have so much respect for gardeners and for people who keep the land in general, I, it's it's very genuine. And so if I did so much reading and did so much research, and I'm sure I got some things wrong, it was really out of that, my interest, but also my respect. Um, and again, I mean, Amy, you know, the conversations I would have with Amy Perella, you know, when, when could Maude plant this? When could she plant that? <laughs> what, what, was this too late? That too late? I mean, she fact-checked the entire manuscript for me. Um, and just uh, that partnership was so amazing because, I mean, she's out there just working, I, I, just the physical um, labor of gardening, um, which I only dabble in in my backyard is amazing. And I think I, yeah. I think women who are out there, you know, working in the sun, doing, doing this hard work, I just think, I just find that so cool. So yeah. Yeah. Well, and you you layer it really beautifully so that you you give reference and ground to the indigenous who still live in the San Francisco area and are right. still using yerba buena and are 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 many and um mostly unseated. Oh. I think all unseated actually. And the so, you know, you you specify the Ohlone, but mm. there are so many. And, you know, and then you layer on top of that the Hispanic settlement and then the uh, European, um, other European um, colonial uh, in, infrastructure and um, impressions left on the land and on peoples um, across the country. So I, I really, uh, I really valued your, your thorough, but you know, generally light hand with these things. And so that brings me to the question, like you did all of this research, were there gardens and gardeners that you had read about and and maybe you were initially going to include, but had to end up on the editing floor? I would have found that so hard to decide like just how much detail to put in on any of these gardens or any of these gardeners. Right. Um, I don't know that any gardener ended up on the cutting floor, except maybe Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> well, he can take it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I did. I had some other, I was so interested in all the gardens of the Hudson Valley, for example. I did. I had a scene, um, I think, in Thomas Cole's garden. Um, you know, I, I did sort of have her, I did have a lot of history of yeah. um of gardening in the Hudson Valley that I ended up cutting. Um, I had more about Andrew Jackson Downing, for example, that I ended up cutting, but it was always really these specific, very specific gardens in terms of the place that the places that I was focusing on. Um, I just cut a lot of detail about them. I mean, I could have written so much more about Montgomery place and, um, and about the Presidio. Yeah. And in that second part of the book, I think, I mean, I hope Maude is also learning uh, yeah. because she grew up in Burlingame. She grew up in the Bay Area, but she really didn't 
no, she had a very kind of Eurocentric vision of the landscape and she has to give herself an education in the yeah. second part of the book. Yeah. Um, so I always did feel because she's an expert in something I'm not an expert in. I felt, you know, I, if I was doing all this research, I had to keep up with her. But then in that second part of the book, she needs to learn. So I was even two, two, yeah. two more steps behind. Um, yeah. But I think she encounters the same frustration I encountered. And that is the lack of written record. And that is the lack of scholarship. Um, and, you know, trying even just for the book, trying to get get names right or trying to get facts right was really difficult. I just went down so many rabbit holes, um, which, you know, brings up this question of whose history do we tell mm -hmm. and how do we tell it and how yes. accurately are we telling it? Yeah. And who is we? This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Novelist Jane Delury's newest title, Hedge, is a great summer garden read. It is a story in which the main character, a gardener, finds herself, as many of us do, through gardening, garden history, and the many lessons of the garden and what it can offer the human heart and life. Stay with us. We'll be back for more with Jane Hey, it's Jennifer again. So just to finish off that story from the first break and the point of this reverie and even how it relates to this conversation with Jane Delury, well, I think the point is this. We know each other better. We understand one another and even ourselves better through the stories our gardens act out for us across time and space. The stories our gardens hold space for. Never forget that. How we tend the land of our gardens shows us just who we are. Happy July, my friends. May your summer garden hold good books, great other gardens, and leisurely garden time for you. We're back now to our conversation with novelist Jane Delury. In her newest title, Hedge, Gardens, Gardeners, and Gardening Across Time and Space and Culture take center stage as main characters. As we come back, Jane and I delve into some of the themes, including that age-old theme of humans being kicked out of the Garden of Eden. This idea of what a garden is. Is it wild land? Mm -hmm. Is it wilderness? Mm -hmm. Is it habitats? Is it uh, history? Is it art? Is it um, all of the above? And, mm -hmm. you know, in, it, in there are definitely overtones of the idea of the Garden of Eden and the knowledge uh, that is partaken of and then gets somebody kicked out of that said Eden. Do you want to talk a little bit about them? Yeah. Um, it, those people who have read the book will really understand the Garden of Eden, <laughs> which, which become really kind of literal, I think, the yes. first part of the book. Um, 
Well, Maud is a, uh, Maud comes from an Irish Catholic background. Um, and that, that doesn't take up a lot of the book, but I think mm-hmm. it's very important. I mean, that's the mythology she comes from. Mm-hmm. So that influences her vision of the world and she knows that. And so I think throughout the book, she's also grappling with that. Um, how do I step away from, you know, the myths that are harmful um, to really to the planet and to other people? How do I keep what what is valuable and how do I even how can I tell the difference? Right. Um, so. Uh, so I think in some it's not that the Garden of Eden myth is it's not ironic, but I think it's something that that idea of of um the myth the myth the mythological garden is mm. so embedded in her because of her upbringing mm-hmm. that it just it infiltrates uh it infiltrates the book and again sort of literally in the in the first part right and and her process of reframing what is the lesson we're supposed to take away from this idea of a garden of eden mm-hmm. and maybe we've gotten it wrong uh, for, mm-hmm. for 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 better or worse for the for a very long time as to what was the what was that lesson um in the story a pivotal moment comes by a hedge at Montgomery place and it uh it, it's only kind of touched on two or three times but it is it is the title of the book right Will you talk a little bit about uh, your what you are asking the idea of hedge to hold in this story, both as a garden element, but also as um, a bigger device, maybe, Jane? Yeah. Um, well, so the hedge, first of all, I really don't like hedges. I just want to say that. I, I I really find, you know, like sculpted hedges make me feel really claustrophobic. Um, so it's kind of ironic that that my book is titled Hedge. Um, but this, uh, you know, a hedge is a high, it's a hiding place. Um, and in your, you, you know, there's a big tra- tradition in European literature in particular, you know, of a couple illicit moments, you know, in gardens with hedges where people can hide. And, and so that's definitely... Um, at play here, but Maud is also hedging. So in the first yes. part of the book, she's she's left her husband, but she hasn't really left him. She's kind of told the children that things are changing, but she actually hasn't told them at all. Um, and I think that comes back at her in what happens. And as the book goes on, she also recognizes that, which raises this question of how um, how honest should we be with our children? <laughs> On the one hand, she is being very strong and and changing her life and making a move by going to the Hudson Valley. On the other hand, she's running away from her problems, which right. are back in the Bay Area, um, right? So she so she is hedging, and I think the in the second part of the book, she comes to realize that that even in these moments where we think that we're addressing things up front and we're being strong, sometimes we're kidding ourselves. And I think that that is um, a truth that Maud has to reconcile over the course of the novel. Well, and I, I love the the play as well on this idea of um, 
how much control do we have? How much control do we try to take? How much control do do we really um, need or even deserve um, in certain ways? And, and a hedge is is a, like a perfect um, again kind of uh, vessel to hold all of that idea. When you think of like very tightly clipped hedges that are either keeping something in or trying to keep something out, and then you think of you know the the richness of something like a hedge row um, that if left to be wild is this fantastic uh, corridor and habitat for wildlife. Um, you know, so it's it's kind it's a it's a beautifully rich botanical uh, um, motif in in the book. I love that. When you think about over the course of your research, and then over the course of Maud's storyline, what do you think most readers, or what would you hope readers take away about the power of of a garden? Um, any garden, really, for for caring for land and space and people, in this sense of, especially in this um, protracted and enlarged sense of time, past, present, future. I do think her relationship to the question of what is a garden ch- does change over over the book and. In when she goes on those walks, so she meets Alice, uh, she establishes this friendship with this artist who has basically l- tried to leave the world, which is impossible, but tried to leave the world and lives um, on on the coast in Marin, um, really isolated. And Maud starts walking with her and they start taking these hikes to a viewpoint um, and they hike in silence. Um, and I think Maud figures out a lot just from being in silence. I think one of the big gifts Alice gives her is, is the gift of silence. And I think when we go into nature and we, when we go into gardens, we, we meet ourselves in a different kind of silence. At least I do. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, the natural world is where I find myself uh, I and I know that's not true for everyone, so I don't want to, you know, make generalizations about that. But I think it's true for many people, and I think it's so important. Um, I just actually went away for three days to Shenandoah National Park, which is something mm. I've started doing, going by myself um, to the closest natural national park I can get to, which is Shenandoah, which is just beautiful. And I just spent three days without any cell signal and any communication, uh, except to let my husband know that, yes, I was still alive um, <laughs> in the one spot that I could find under a tree somewhere. And just, I just hiked like Maud and Alice hike and I was in silence and I started to see the world more clearly. I saw the wildflowers more clearly. I saw the shadows in the trees. The first day that I was hiking. My mind was going so fast. I was thinking of all these things, the book coming out, you know, school. By the third day, I was just in this meditative state where I felt so centered. And I I think that's a gift that the natural world gives us. And um, yeah, I guess from this conversation with you, I think think it's all a garden, um, whether it's cultivated or not. Yeah. I'm so glad you got those three days, and I hope everybody heard that and and tries to find their own two or three days. Although I think there is research to suggest that three days is sort of a minimum um, to get to that state where nonverbal communication and non-human centric 
perspective yeah. is allowed to really open up in us. Um, when you think about this book, and, and clearly this is a novel, this is a great read, it's a great summer read for, for anybody who enjoys a good human story. Um, but maybe some of these ideas uh, are are bigger than just a novel. Um, and I, you know, I say just a novel in a in the most complimentary way that I that I can, because uh, it is through um, art and fiction that we sometimes see the the biggest truths about ourselves. Were there um, additional hopes for you in the impact of this work with its strong focus on the world of horticulture and uh, historic uh, horticulture in our world? Well, thank you for saying that about the book. First of all, um, I think thinking about the natural world so much, thinking about the role it has in my life through, you know, through Maud and and her journey, uh, I see how important it is that everyone has access to that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, if I find solace every morning when I go downstairs before everyone wakes up and I just walk through and see what has happened overnight in my plants, I mean, that's my tiny little window. It's not three days, but it's it's that moment of grounding and of, of centeredness. If mm -hmm. I get that, why doesn't everybody get that? Mm -hmm. um, and so even though the novel doesn't really go into this. I think it starts to raise some of these questions in the second part of the book. But I mean, I think if there's a conversation that I'm interested in having, it's that, like, how do we give this, how do we give this to everybody? Um, I mean, I, I live in a city where um, there is not a lot of green space as you keep driving toward the Harbor and that's wrong. Um, I actually, this spring, started volunteering on a on a farm that uh is that is growing on what used to be a, a a city block and it is just the most amazing magical place it's this you know it's it's just all of this green in in a lot of um cement and so i think that's that's the big question i have personally now and and that's something that i'm thinking about you know how can i how can i help um address that in my own personal life, whether or not, you know, I end up writing a book about it is another thing. But those are the kinds of um, questions that I've been brought to as a person from from the exploration of writing this novel. Is there any section that you would want to read, whether it be the end or the beginning? So I will read this moment when from the first chapter where Maud has first arrived in Montgomery Place and is trying to figure out where those beds might be and trying to solve this uh, this problem. And she moves right. into a yes. reverie, which she does sometimes, where, she, where kind of time dissolves and she tries to see into the past. Um, okay. So she's in the mansion looking out at this lawn that used to be this formal garden. She leaned her forehead against the window pane, scrutinizing the view. Honey-colored light filled the conservatory and bounced off the grass. The beds were right there. They had to be. She could see them, swimming their way past the black locust trees that sentried the lawn, blooming and tufting, whooping with color. Women in silk dresses shaped like calla lilies and mustached men in top hats strolling the paths, sipping sherry from crystal glasses. 
In the conservatory, a harpist playing on the, under the dripping eaves of banana fronds. And once the guests had gone, the garden still, the chirping of robins replaced by the hooting of owls, Alexander Gilson, the estate's head gardener, would sit alone on the steps to watch night fall. He was the person Maud most wished she could talk to. He would know everything she needed to know. He could point out each bed and tell her its secrets. As the sun dissolved and the moon appeared, she'd walk behind him in the gloaming, taking notes, asking questions, and writing down plant names. Beautiful. And there are so many questions we want to ask the gardeners of the past, aren't there? Oh, yes. Yes. If I were to ask you three plants that you are super excited to garden or hike around this summer, what would those be? Oh, okay. To garden or hike yes. around? To garden so, with or so. hike around. So it could be just like plants you want to see in your garden this year, or it could be plants you're super excited to go meet in the Shenandoah National Park. Right. Okay. All right. So I have an answer. So gardening would be... Uh, passion vine, passion mm. flower. I grow it every year. Sometimes it opens for me. Sometimes it doesn't, but when it opens, it's just the most amazing experience to just stare into those blooms. So that would be, um, that would be the plant that I'm most excited about gardening. And, um, I'm really excited to be back in the Redwoods. I don't know that I'm going to have that much time in them because I'm going to be on book tour, but I I just, I want to walk in, in the misty Redwoods and see the ferns under the Redwoods this summer back in the Bay Area. Thank you very much for your centering of these complex themes of our garden world in such a beautiful and important way, Jane, and for being a guest on the program today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. This was an absolute delight. Jane Delury is the author of The Balcony, a novel in stories, which won the Sue Kaufman Prize for First Fiction from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. Her newest novel, Hedge, was published by Zibby Books in June. It is one of those lovely stories that centers the importance and impact of gardens and gardeners of all kinds over time and space. It's also just a great story. Join us again next week when we continue our summer vacation theme in conversation with Oklahoma gardener Linda Vodder, whose potager blog and whose book, The Elegant Edible Garden, are luxurious reminders that style and beauty have soothing and pleasing roles in our garden lives. That's next week. Listen in. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners just like you through the support button at the top right-hand corner of every page at cultivatingplace.com. For all of you that support, thank you. You literally make this growing work possible. Cultivating Place is also made possible through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation and by the Garden Conservancy. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler, tech and web support from Angel Haracha, weekly show transcripts by Doulis Transcription, and communications intern 
Sheila Stern. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Places distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy summer and the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. 